Tonight we continue our study through what is called the Book of the Law section of Exodus. This is going to run until chapter 23, verse 19. We're not going to finish it tonight. We'll finish that, I believe, next week. But tonight we're going to go from chapter 21, verse 7, down to chapter 22, verse 15. And this is when you're in these little one to five verse sections on various laws. And it's important to remember that these were laws. This was not just some spiritual philosophical thing where you're going to just learn these nice little nuggets that you can put on the fridge. No, this was the law. This was their constitution. So this is what the judge would look at when somebody brought a civil case before him. So it's for that reason that it can seem a little tedious and a little irrelevant to us, but it's not. Uh, We're going to go through every one of these. Not every one of them will have the same length. But they all have some application, not maybe to our own lives necessarily, but certainly to our jurisprudence and the way that we handle principles in our country. And there are things that every culture just does as part of history and part of tradition. And it's good every now and then to run up against how God had his people do it. And it might not always be a corrective, but sometimes it can shine a light on ways we need to pay a little more attention. Last time we looked at the laws for altars, very briefly, and then we took a a good long time to discuss slavery and the Bible. And we didn't just look at this section, we looked at the whole Bible, and we looked at history and some other things, and if you did not hear that one, I strongly, strongly ask that you go back and listen to it. Because we're going to be reading a lot in the book of Exodus about slaves and slavery and servants and bond servant. Bond servant is basically a nice word for slave. A bond servant is a servant in bondage, right? But it's, we talked about it last time. This is not the same kind of institution as we had in the Old South or as we've seen in other parts of the world even today. So that's important to know, although there's certainly application here. Uh, but we are not going to go into every detail of that again. But it's worth going back. And we're going to see as we go through this, there will be a lot more laws about slavery or contract servanthood might be a better better way of putting it. Uh, And most importantly, in this section, this is where we get the famous eye for an eye law. You've all heard of that, mostly out of the, the mouth of Jesus. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which is an essential legal principle. And it's one that every system of justice ought to try to hold to. But in fact, in the Christian life, you're called to go beyond that and you're called to show mercy and not just justice. So we're going to get right into it. Verse seven, and we'll go down to verse 11. And it's going to start off real shocking, but just take the time and let's read it together. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now we heard the shocked reactions in this room when I read the first half of that sentence. When a man does what with his daughter? Sells his daughter as a slave. Now what happens is immediately we have a cultural reaction to that. And we think, who would do such a thing? Well, this little paragraph is a great object lesson in the Bible of taking your time, slowing down, reading the context, and not just reacting to words. We want to be careful because if you were to just react to the first half of that, as some people will do, it says this in the Bible. But very often, if you keep reading, 
it'll show you that it's not quite what you think it is. This comes on the heels of what we read in the first verses of this chapter, that slavery, and that is the word eved in Hebrew, and that's how we would translate it, but this was not, in most cases, this was not forced bondage. What it essentially was is a six-year indentured servitude contract. You would be paid most often up front a sum of money, and then you would work in that person's house for six years. There was a contract negotiation process, and then in year seven, you would be released. So that is most of what we're talking about is a six-year indentured servitude, although it uses the word slave, and it is a good translation because we don't want to reduce this to employment because it was more serious than that. But this is different because he says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave. Now, what Moses is going to do here, he is signaling additional rules to what he just said. He's not coming up with something totally different for, for women. This is in addition to that. And specifically, I hope you picked up on it, this little paragraph here is related to arranged marriage. This is not just if you had to sell your daughter As we see quite often happening in the Bible, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, this happened, most often for the repayment of debt. If you couldn't pay back your debt, if your crops didn't produce, you owed somebody money. It's not saying you can have my daughter forever, but you would put your daughter or your son into one of these six-year servitude contracts. So everything that we have already read is true about that. But now this is a different case. When a man sells his daughter... He says there's a distinction here. What is the distinction? Mainly because, as you see there in verse 10, it says another wife. So this is talking here about arranged marriage, although it is a little different than just straight marriage. But look in verse 8. It says that if she was for himself, so if he contracted this daughter for himself, or verse 9, for his son. There was a custom in ancient China where young girls would be bought as slaves, brought into the house, to be raised alongside the young man in the house as good friends so that when they got older, they would be married. And that was how they did it. And this is almost certainly exactly what's going on here. So this passage, to be clear, is not attacking women's rights as you might see it right off the bat, saying a woman doesn't get to go out like the male slaves do. I heard somebody interpret it that way, and it's it's a misread here. Say, well, the men can go out after six years, but the women can't. That is not what it says. No, he's actually, if you're going to read it carefully, protecting these women here. We, of course, have very strong feelings about arranged marriage, which is ironic because that's still how they do it in most parts of the world. And it's how it was done at least to a, a greater degree in this country for a while. And it's, it's remarkable to me how more people I, I hear complaining, like, I just don't know how I'm supposed to meet anybody. How am I supposed to find somebody? How am I supposed to be with someone? Like, Well, if mom and dad set it up when you were 12, that's one less thing to worry about. So let's make sure we don't read our cultural preferences into this system here. The law here is that if a man brings a woman into his house through this servitude contract to be his wife, or I will add perhaps to be a surrogate concubine similar to how Hagar was to Abraham. Perhaps his wife was unable to have children or whatever the case may be. As I said, this was a different culture. Polygamy was not prohibited at this point. But the point is, when she comes into this relationship and she is contracted, not just for the six years, but as an eventual marriage partner, she immediately gains the rights of a daughter or of a wife. Do you remember what a big deal it was when it said Joseph wanted to divorce Mary, his fiancée, in the book of Matthew and Luke? Because... This was a very serious contracted legal thing. They had not come together in their wedding ceremony, but they belonged to one another. 
So it says, if she does not please him, meaning maybe he falls in love with somebody else, let's put it that way, and he doesn't, but he's already contractually obligated to this woman, or maybe he wishes to divorce her. Well, he said, then you may not, number one, hold on to her contract and just keep her in your house and shove her off to the side. Can't do that. Nor can you just sell her off to somebody else. Hey, I've got this woman. She's got four years left on her contract. Would you like to buy it? He says, no, you cannot do that. You've broken faith. She came in expecting that this was not just going to be the place where I work for the next six years. This was to be my home. This was to be my husband. This was to be my family. And now you're going to kick me out? He says, no, you don't get to do that. He says, she may be redeemed, meaning her father may come back and buy her back. And he couldn't say no, right? So if you could demonstrate in court that any of these violations had been caused, dad could bring it back, or maybe her brother could bring it to court and say, we're getting her out of here because she's essentially become unwelcome in this house, even though he was supposed to take care of her. So you see that the, the restrictions are being placed upon the husband in this situation, or the father-in-law, as the case may be. And he says, if you got her for your son, meaning we're going to get you all when you're 10, you'll grow up, you'll get to know each other, you'll be good, close friends, and then you'll get married. He says, and you decide you're not going to do that anymore, you've got to treat her like a daughter. So she immediately gains all the rights that we will read about and that we know about that the daughters would have. We're going to read later on that daughters had an inheritance from their fathers, for example. And in verse 10, he says, if, she mar if he marries another... So if he brings in this woman to be his wife, and in this case, it seems to be that they are married, and he marries another woman, she retains three things from this man. Number one, her food. Number two, her clothing. And number three, her marital rights or her conjugal rights. So he cannot say, I don't know where you're going to get your food from, but I've already got a new wife, so you can figure it out for yourself. No, you can't do that. Nor can he start restricting the access to the things in the house. That's the that's second point. Her clothing. He's like, you know, I'm not going to immediately cut you off and you've got to go live in the back shed or something like that. No, you can't do that. And number three, her conjugal rights. He goes, you don't get to do that to a woman. God takes that very seriously in the, in the law, as we will see. He says, if you commit a sexual act with a woman, you owe something to her because you have been brought together. And so he says, you may not remove that from her either. So in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we have an example of Hannah, who was married to Elkanah. And then there was a second woman, Penina, who was also married to Elkanah. And Penina made Hannah's life miserable, probably because Hannah couldn't have children, which means Penina was probably brought in to have children. And then she did, and she never let Hannah forget it. And what the Lord is saying is you're not going to put her into that kind of situation. Now, we read in that story, Elkanah was good to her, but it was something that he couldn't exactly help. So he says, if you cast off this woman that is your wife, or if you fail to provide for her, then she's free to leave you, contract or not. Well, I, I purchased you for this amount. You're, you're under contract. Not anymore. You broke it, not me. So he's not having complete power over her. So do you see very carefully this law is intended to protect these girls, not to oppress them. If, you're gonna, if this is how you're going to do things, here's how you're going to do it. You're going to treat her with respect. If you brought her in as a daughter, you're going to treat her as a daughter. You bring her in as a wife, you're going to treat her as a wife. And especially this rule about marital rights is significant. I mean, one thing to consider is if you continue to engage in sexual intercourse together as a husband and wife, she could become pregnant, have a child. And if this guy is going to be a jerk and not take care of her, well, now she maybe has a son or two who will be able to take care of her as they get older. But also, this teaches us, here's our lesson that we can gather as those that are, don't have arranged marriages, that God insists upon sexual intimacy in marriage. 
Genesis 2.24 says, A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that one flesh thing is not just poetry, but that is the way that the Lord describes the sexual union. I've read this ver verse many times because I think it is a not very often referred to passage, but we've got to hear it. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 5. Paul wrote, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So can you see this story playing out? This man has brought this woman into his house, married her, been together for a few years. He finds somebody else and kicks her off to the side. She gets lonely. She gets angry. She commits adultery with another man. Now her husband wants to get all righteous and haul her up in front of the court and say, look what she's done. God says, you're not going to do that. No, if you married this woman, you married this woman. So you can see this principle echoed in the New Testament. It says, you all are to take care of each other sexually in order to make sure neither one of you is tempted to sin. Neither one of you is tempted to go after adultery or pornography or whatever it is. And he says, you don't have rights to your own bodies. Your wife has rights over you. Your husband has rights over you. And obviously we don't have concubinage today. Thank God. Good progress in my opinion. Or arranged marriages. But here's the lesson to learn from this passage. Husbands, as a leader of your home, you are to make sure that your wife is provided for and always feels valued in your house. Always. She's not your property. You're not the big dog who has to show how tough and strong you are by beating down your wife or making her feel small. No, the Lord is not down with that. So that's that one. Moving on to verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So we've seen in verse 13 of chapter 20, thou shalt not kill. It's the sixth commandment. Well, now we've got a more detailed explanation here. When we read that one, we were talking about, now is this murder? Is this manslaughter? What is this here? Well, God explains himself. Very often, keep reading is the answer to interpretive questions in the Bible. He says, if you strike with a hand, with a tool, we might add with a gun, and they die, it's the death penalty for you. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God told Noah, if a man sheds the blood of man, then by man shall his blood be shed. But verses 13 and 14 do a really great job of showing the wisdom of the Lord and giving exceptions. So if this is not what we'd call premeditated murder, meaning if you were fighting or you were in a fit of passion, and something happened in the moment, and it says God let him fall into his hand, meaning it, it was nothing I planned, but it turned out that way. Maybe God planned it to go this way. Do you remember when David was hiding in the cave, and Saul comes in, and his men are like, David, the Lord has delivered Saul into your hand. What are they saying? They're saying, under Exodus 21, you wouldn't be guilty of murder, because he's been trying to kill you, and he walked right in front of you. Same thing when they snuck into the camp. 
And that's when Abishai says, David, I know you didn't want to do it in the cave. Let me do it this time. I'll take the heat for it. The Lord has let him fall into your hands. And David, of course, showed mercy. But you see an application of this law here. But he says, if that happens, you know, say you're fighting with somebody and you're mad and you're so angry and you're wailing on each other and you hit him and he falls back and hits his head on a rock or something and, and he dies. It just happened. You didn't mean to. So what do you do? Do you have to then be killed if you never intended to? No. He says the killer could flee. And in Numbers 35, we're going to see the establishment of the cities of refuge. These were cities scattered throughout the land of Israel to which somebody in this situation could run where an avenger, meaning somebody who was coming after you, was not allowed to execute you. You were to, as he says there in verse 14, lay hold of the horns of the altar. You go and you grab onto that altar. You're not going to defile the Lord's altar by killing somebody there, right? And this was the primary place, and all the other cities of refuge were Levite cities, so we could assume that the Levites had altars there. But what is this for? This is to slow down the process. If it's found out that this was murder, like you did try to kill this guy, you planned the whole thing, and then you executed it, and oh, it was an accident, I'm at the city of refuge, and God goes, then you drag that man off my altar and you do what needs to be done. This is what happens in 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2. When David was dying, his son Adonijah got some of his father's generals. Joab was one. Joab was the commander of David's army. And they said, Adonijah is king. And they threw a big party. And Bathsheba comes to David and said, you said Solomon was to be king. So David had an official coronation where Solomon was crowned. So Everybody ran away, and Joab, who knew he had messed up, ran to the temple and grabbed hold of the altar. And he said, ah, you're not going to kill me here. But it actually turns out that David told Solomon, he says, Joab is a bad dude. You need to kill him. You need to execute him when I die. And so Solomon had him dragged from the altar. Adonijah also would flee to a city of refuge in that story. But the point of this law is to slow down the process of revenge and execution in order to make sure there is time to get justice. So you can imagine somebody accidentally kills a man's brother. Maybe they're fighting. Maybe they weren't. Maybe it was an accident. And he finds out his family's coming for you. So he gets on his horse or his donkey and he rides off to the city of refuge and he runs into the temple, the tabernacle, and he grabs hold of that, that altar. And here comes big brother coming in with a sword drawn, trying to come after him. And the priest, whoa, 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 you're not coming in here. He says, that man killed my brother. It was an accident. I didn't mean to kill your brother. Says, this is a city of refuge, friend. You can't do that here. Let's have a trial. So he's gonna, you're going to put your sword away. You'll come away from the altar and we'll have a trial right now. To slow down the process. And in Romans 12, 19, Paul would take it a step further. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Never avenge yourselves. Just write that down. There's plenty of ways that we can take revenge on other folks, even if it's not murder. But like slavery, it's important to know, revenge was an accommodation. This was never God's ideal. Remember when Cain killed Abel? And in Genesis 4, God put a mark on Cain so that nobody would would kill him. God is trying right there to put a stop to the process of the cycle of murder and the cycle of revenge. So in his law, he establishes ways to establish justice slowly. And then when the new covenant comes and we're under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit goes, now here's the real point. Don't ever do this. Stop killing one another. 
We are to walk in love. This also could remind us in the United States the importance of waiting to gain all the facts before we judge somebody. In the news, some celebrity, some politician, some friend of yours, somebody brings in the gossip. Do you know what they did? You know what they said? You know what you can say? You say, listen, if that's true, that's awful. But I, I want to hear it from them. Remember the proverb says, every man's story sounds good until you ask his friend. <laughs> oh, well, that, that sounds reasonable too. So we obviously live in a very hasty time where everything gets prejudged before the actual trial, right? So in your own life, wait to get all the facts. Be a city of refuge for the people in your life. Well, I'm going to look now at verse 15 and 17. There's kind of a concentric structure here. So these two verses, which are not next to each other, are about the same idea. Verse 15 says, Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. And whoever curses his father or his mother, verse 17, shall be put to death. So these two verses go together. These are expanding on the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And it's important to remember, most of these commandments are given in order to maintain a society, not just on God's favorite rules. And what we know from our own time and from back then as well, a person who is willing to assault their mother or father is certainly not going to stop outside of the family. So when he says to strike, this is, not, this is not even just to strike in the moment. You could translate that to assault, to come after mom or dad. And to curse, this is not just something like, I hate you. This is translated in the, in the Greek, the LXX, he says, the reviling. Reviling, terrible dishonor to the mother and father. If somebody does not respect their parents, they probably don't respect anybody. And you've known people like that. And it's most likely that these are commands that would apply to older children, perhaps even getting to adult children. You know, little three-year-old children say all kinds of things that they have to be taught not to say. And it's important for us to recognize this. This was the death penalty. And it's important to note here when it says, shall be put to death, what the Lord is doing is establishing what the penalty is, and the judge would have discernment in the moment to determine, is this really worth death or is this something that maybe there can be some other kind of punishment involved here? It's astonishing to me how much some people will let their kids get away with. And if you've got a child, a grown child, who's willing to strike and assault you or to curse you, I'm not talking to get in an argument, but to curse you and denounce you, you ought to have handled that issue a long time ago. Very often, I was a youth pastor. We have kids that were 17, 18 years old, mom and dad, what do I do? And I would, t- I would try to help them as best I can, but you're thinking, you should have done this when they were two. If you'd had this conversation when they were two, instead of 12 or 18, you would have had a much easier time with it. They're smaller then. You can hold them down. You, know, you, can, you can make them do what they want. And if you have kids, you've looked into your infant's eyes and seen murderous rage in there. This is just, it's really, it's cute when they're little, right? You know, I've got a little, like, Oh, 11-month-old child right now. He's almost a year old. But even when he was sitting at the dinner table one time, I'll never forget this, and he wanted more food or whatever he did. And he was kind of, you know, signaling for it and saying, ah, I want it, I want it. And he wound up and like one eye closed and, and looked dead at me and dead at his mom and screamed. I'm like, if he was a grown man, he would have gone to prison for what he just wanted to do. 
But he, no, luckily he's strapped into that high chair and he can't get out. But, you know, that's why God gives them to us small so that we can teach them when they're small. But if you don't do that, then it's going to become a problem later. Parents are not, of course, Colossians 3.21, to provoke their children. But can I remind you, parents, you are an authority figure in your children's life. And hopefully, ideally, as you get older, you will see that relationship change and mature and grow. Most of your life as a parent is going to be spent with adult children. So there's a short window of time where you need to absolutely be mom or dad. Proverbs 13.24 Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. That's where spare the rod, spoil the child comes from. Children don't know anything. They don't. They come into the world. They're not, they, they don't have, we can have, especially people without kids can have this weird wisdom, think that children have this strange wisdom you know, like my, they'll say to them, you know, my eight-year-old niece, she's the smartest person I know. It's like, you got to get out more, you know. <laughs> it's up to you to teach them. You know, I, I wish I had been making a list, but some of the things you have to teach your kids, it's like, don't lick the power outlet. It's like, well, everybody knows that. Well, you have to teach them that. You have to teach them these things. And here's the deal. We say, spare the rod. Okay, obviously God is not telling you to abuse your children. We always jump straight to that. Okay, now, I, I do not see a problem with corporal punishment as a parent. I don't mind telling y'all, I spank my kids. I do never abuse my kids. And in fact, when we finish spanking our kids, that is like when we have the most, they'll run into my arms and cry on my shoulder and we're hugging and we're kissing and it's fine a minute later. There are some folks that don't want to do that. Okay, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells you you have to do this. Here's what I will say though. The point of corporal punishment, spanking, whatever it is, is to teach the children that when you do something wrong, it hurts. When you lie, it hurts. When you're disrespectful, it hurts. When you steal, it hurts. And with different kids, you need to be a little more forceful because they have different personalities and all the rest of it. Because that's what life is, isn't it? If you're going to be a liar, it's going to hurt. If you're going to be a thief, it's going to hurt. If you won't, if you know, you teach when they're two or three or whatever, you have to start teaching them, don't hit. Don't hit. If you haven't told your kid that a thousand times, you might need to, you know, stock up and say it a few more times. Then they get older and they start hitting people. And someone's going to hit them back and it will hurt. So, if you're not going to administer corporal punishment, I don't have a problem with that. But you do need to discipline them. And that discipline needs to hurt. doesn't need to necessarily be physical pain. But you must do something to the degree that they get the message. And I will tell you, sometimes disciplining your children is exhausting. But you've got to win that fight. Don't let your kid outlast you. Don't let your children outlast you. You're more patient than they are. You might not think it, but you are, I promise. I've had to teach four different children, working on four now, to eat. You'd think eating would be the easiest thing in the world, but, you know, if it's not chicken nuggets and dipped in ranch, they don't want it in my house, so... Sometimes it's like, all right, tonight we're learning this lesson. And everybody else goes off and does their thing, and there's dad sitting there with a spoonful of something. You're going to eat this. No, you're going to eat this. And it's like, you've got to win. You've got to win that. I don't want to break their spirit. Hey, don't break their spirit. But you do need to break them like you'd break a horse. Because if you don't, they're going to grow up, and you're going to turn them loose on the world. Parents who just want to be friends with their kids, 
Get some friends. I'm serious. I'm serious. If you're looking to your children, seriously, hear me now. If you're looking to your children to satisfy your social and emotional needs, you are compromised as a parent. Find somebody else around you to fill those needs. Fill them for each other as a husband and wife. Come to church and meet some people that are your age or older or younger that you can get that from. Because that's not what your kids need from you. Some people want to use their kids as a prop. I wasn't able to be good at sports, but by golly, this kid's going to be good at sports. Get out. It's five in the morning, got three hours till school, so let's go run some laps. Or, you know, they want to dress the kid up and make her look real pretty. Or they want to, you know how people will do this. Your kid's not your prop. It's your child that you're raising. And some parents just want to be left alone. There are some people that really want to have a real hands-off thing with their kids, not because they believe in free-range, you know, let the children lead the way. They just like, I just can't be bothered. Sorry, you signed up for this. It's too late. Well, I don't want to. Sorry. I'm I'm not ready to be a dad. If you have a child, you're a dad. If you have a daughter or a son, you're a woman, you're a mom. It's too late. You don't get to go back. Step up. You've got to do it. Or you run the risk of loosing a little tyrant on the world. So parents, keep your kids in line. Don't let it get to that place. And the church especially, we've got to lead the way in loving discipline. So let's go back now to verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Here's a law related to kidnapping, which of course also has bearing on how we understand what slavery was like in the land of Israel. Slaves at this time, and remember we've talked about this, contracted indentured servitude is probably a better way to understand it, could be acquired through contract. That was the primary way. They could be through punishment. You committed some crime or other and you have to pay it back. We're going to read about some of that in a little bit. Through warfare. If you were conquering another nation, you won in battle. Rather than being killed, the soldier could submit to you and he'd be brought into your house as a captive. But never through going into other nations and kidnapping people from their homeland. Never. So for our nation, where the West Africans were raided and kidnapped by Arabs or other Africans in most cases, sold to white slavers on the coast and then shipped to America as cargo, there's no biblical foundation for that. None. It's a blight on our society. I don't think I need to convince you of that. But it's important that you know that the Bible feels the same way. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul is giving a list of things and people that are contrary to sound doctrine, and one of them is enslavers. In which we would say, obviously, that's not sound doctrine. So whenever somebody says, well, people use the Bible to justify slavery. Yeah, that's not sound doctrine. I don't know what kind of doctrine it is, but it's not Bible doctrine. Kidnapping like that is never approved in the Bible. In fact, there was the death penalty waiting for you if you did that. So all those these days who traffic young boys and girls for sexual use, you know where the capital of that is the Atlanta airport in the whole world? Isn't that tragic? That's where the most human trafficking in the world happens. It may have been updated since the last time I I checked, but it wasn't that long ago. Or all those who kidnap and abuse children coming across the southern border. I don't care what your politics are. It's awful what happens to those children going across that border. Or those armies like the Sudanese armies. Mostly this happens in Africa or the Middle East where they kill the family, take the children, and make the child slaves out of them. These are all condemned by God. For every kind of theft, as we're going to read, 
You were not put to death in the book of the law. You had to make restitution. But if you sold or bought a person, you were to be executed. So you can see right there the Lord's opinion on this. Verses 18 through 21. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Another one of those verses we can react to. Let's go slow again. So here you have laws concerning injury. So we've kind of gone talking about things that required capital punishment. Now we're starting to get into, as you might say, manslaughter or not quite getting to the point of death. So he says, if you fight a man, but you don't kill him, but you lay him up in the hospital, he survives. You have to pay for his time that he lost and you have to pay for his rehabilitation. So you might say, well, what if you injured somebody permanently? Well, you just saddled yourself with a bill for life is what you did. He must be thoroughly healed, it says in verse 19. So obviously most of the time back in these days, they were day laborers. Or if you owned a field and you weren't able to finish planting and you weren't able to finish harvesting, whatever money you would have lost, the guy that laid you up in the hospital is the guy that's got to pay for all that. Now, then he gets into verse 20, talks about what about somebody who is my slave, my contracted indentured servant. If you were administering corporal punishment, a beating with a rod, he says, to a slave, and you killed it, killed him or her, I should say, then you were to be killed. So this is the kind of thing that happens in other places where slaves get beaten to the point of death and even die. That was a capital crime in God's economy. But what people will accuse the Bible of here is saying, now look, see, they don't have to pay for the time of the, of the slave in this case. Well, read it closely. If the slave survives, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. It can be translated property, which is a poor translation. I'll explain why in a minute. That, that's kind of like assuming what he's supposed to mean there. If you killed your contracted slave, then you were to be killed. But if the slave survived, you would not be killed or penalized. Why? Because the other payment, the other penalty was to be paying for the loss of this person's time. And if this person is your contracted labor and you injure them to the point where they can't work, the person who's losing out financially is you. That's why you're not making extra payment here. You were already responsible for this person's well-being. That was part of the contract. So you already have to pay for him to be healed and to be brought back to full health. And he's not getting paid for the loss of his time. You're the one losing money for the loss of your time. This is important to know. This verse is not establishing the legitimacy of slave ownership. It is really unfortunate the older translations have for it is his property. The word there in the ESV for money is kesef. It's the word silver. It's the word silver. For he is his silver. I think investment might be a good translation there. He says, you know, you don't have to pay anything. That is your silver. That man's labor is your silver that you're losing out on every day he's not working. So it's best for you to not beat your slaves and not to injure them. This represents an investment, not the superiority in the soul. 
Now, we despise any kind of corporal punishment with children, but certainly beyond that as well. I don't even know if we have that in the military any longer, but you know, on the Navy and things like that, you used to get flogged if you, miss, uh, if you stepped out of line. And this used to happen also in certain jobs, in certain job capacities. We think, what? That's so terrible. And that was pretty common up until not that long ago. So once again, God is not mandating such things. God's not saying, now don't forget that if, you're, if your employees don't do what they're supposed to, then you know, you make sure you beat them well. That's not what he says. He's managing the punishment here. He's saying, if, <laughs> basically saying, if, if you injure your own slave or servant so that they can't work, that's your own dumb fault. So no, you don't get to let that person go. You can pay to heal them because you're the one that hurt them in the first place. So this really is not a different rule between the two. He's just establishing you've already paid a, a, probably a large sum of money in order to acquire this labor in the first place. So if you injure this person so that they can't work, got no sympathy for you. And it's interesting to note, and I'm going to have to start going slower or faster on some of these applications, but this is a good one. The story of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember this one? Luke 10, 33 and 35, as the Samaritan comes and he sees the man beaten by the side of the road, says the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, what's important to see about that and what we can kind of miss as Gentiles who maybe don't know our Old Testaments as well, what Jesus is showing is it, he's calling back to this law here. saying, if you injured somebody, it was up to you to pay for them to get well. The Samaritan sees somebody that he didn't do anything to and voluntarily takes upon himself the cost of this person's rehabilitation. So this just intensifies the message that Jesus is teaching. The New Testament ideal is for us to show compassion and take care even of those we have not wronged. I mean, if you hurt somebody, yeah, you ought to pay up. But even if you didn't, Jesus says, do it anyway. Be a good neighbor. And we are so blessed to live in a land with labor laws. Yeah, you can't do that. Your boss hits you at work and he's in trouble. <laughs> we have labor unions now. And however they may have been moved from what they were at the beginning... There, there were co corporations and companies back in the day that required you to live on the property and that you were essentially a functional slave for some of these companies. So we have those things. We have a socially conscious populace, haven't you noticed? If something even sniffs unfair to us, we're all over it, right? Uh, that's a, those are blessings that we ought, to, we ought to be grateful for. So what can we learn from this? How do we apply this to our own lives? Don't make your manager regret the fact that he has to be nice to you. Be a good employee. And if you're a boss, treat them well. Make them glad to work for you. Verse 22 and 23. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. And he goes on eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We'll come back to that in a minute. So this concerns pregnancy and miscarriage here. So if two men are fighting and a pregnant woman tries to intervene, and this may happen, as you can imagine, it's interesting to us why he would insert this into the law. Is this so common that he had to talk about it? Well, he's trying to make a larger point. 
If a pregnant woman tries to intervene between two fighting men, she's liable to be hit in the heat of the moment. And if she's very pregnant, this could cause a premature delivery. It could cause a miscarriage. It could cause injury to her. Now he says, if the baby is born, so let's say she's, she's far along and she gets pushed over and the baby comes, but there's no harm, meaning she has a healthy baby. She's fine. The man is still going to be fined. But Lord, we were fighting. He goes, I don't care. That's a pregnant woman. You can see there's protection for women in the law, contrary to what you popularly hear. But if there is harm, meaning if the baby is stillborn, or if there is a miscarriage, or some kind of birth defect, or if the woman in, is injured and maybe unable to have children again, then this man could be executed for that. And notice he says, as the judge is determined. This is a great example of the Lord giving the maximum penalty, but also giving leeway to the judges in order to make a determination in the situation. This is one of the most important passages in your Bible related to abortion. It's not specifically talking about abortion, but what do we see here? It is clear that the life of an unborn child was protected under God's law. He says, if, I don't care if it was an accident. If you harm that baby, you're going to be executed. We're going to stone you. We're going to hang you. You're going to be put to death. And you can almost miss it. And this is one of those, why would God put that there? Well, maybe the Lord knew that in 21st century America, we'd need passages like this. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. The Lord told Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God knows our days. He forms us in the womb. He looks forward to the life to come. This is abundantly clear in Scripture. Read Psalm 139 if you're not sure about that. The Lord knows the infant, the child in the womb. And we look back as we have quite frequently in these last few weeks, on the horrendous evil that was slavery in America. But can we neglect the horrendous evils of our own time, including that of abortion? I do not mind putting those two things in the same category. They are both remarkable injustices. Do you know why God ultimately decided he was going to judge the southern kingdom of Judah? It's because of King Manasseh. Now, King Manasseh would go on to repent, and God would delay judgment. But in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 6, it says that King Manasseh put his sons through the fire of the god Molech. The Lord called him actually the abomination Molech. This was a god where you would bring your children, your live babies, and you would put them on the altar, and the children would burn up as the people danced and sang. It's a horrific thing. And when he did that, God says, I'm going to wipe Judah clean like you'll wipe a dish clean. It brought God's wrath down upon them. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb and was able to recognize Jesus in the womb. How do we expect then to avoid the wrath of God when we promote and subsidize and celebrate evils like this? And I don't like to spend a lot of time harping on this kind of stuff because it can very quickly become gratuitous and, and we're not learning anything else. But we need to be absolutely clear about this. We're doing the baby bottle campaign and the 5K that we're going to do in May and all those other things as a way to participate. And you know, the, the comparisons, and this might be a study to do on its own, between the way people defend abortion and the way people defend slavery are, are, are so close. It's, it's shocking. When you start defining it, you know, when it wasn't challenged, slavery was described as a, re a regrettable thing, but we got to have it. And then when it started being pushed, they said, no, actually, it's a positive thing, and I'm proud to own slaves. Not like it was back in the days of Jefferson and Washington, for example.
Same thing with abortion. Well, you know, we've got to have it. We've got to protect these people. And then when the second it starts to look like we might be gaining some ground on that, now all of a sudden it's shout your abortion. Celebrate what you've done. Don't hide it. Be proud of it. So much for safe, legal, and rare, huh? Also, people used to say back in the days of slavery, they said, well, what do you want to do? You're going to let them all go? Well, then what do we do? Now what do we do? How are we supposed to handle that social situation? Do you want them coming to your town? Do you, are you going to take care of them? Are you going to give them money? Are you going to teach them to read? What are we going to do? And they took, looked at all the big social problems that would come from freeing the slaves as a reason why they shouldn't do it, which were real problems. That in large part, or at least in some ways, we're still dealing with to this day. And people say the same thing about abortion, don't you? Don't they? Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to adopt all these children? Are you going to take care of these women? You don't care about the babies. You just, you just don't want people to be aborted. You don't care about the people going through this stuff. Which isn't true, by the way. Evangelical Christians adopt way more babies than anybody else. We take good care of everybody at every stage of this process. And even if they go through with that horrific thing, we're still there to give them the grace of Jesus and love them into the kingdom. But I'll tell you what, I'll deal with whatever the fallout is. Let's stop sinning first, and then we'll worry about what comes after. And I know it's easy to grow weary in this kind of fight. But I want you to at least let passages like this remind you that this is God's mind on these things. And God is so merciful, sometimes you don't even understand. But I'm glad he is. Let's speak out. But remember, if we do, don't, don't speak out with your fists raised and your eyes bloodshot and screaming. No, no, you do it with tears in your eyes. Let the people see that you care, because we do. Verse 23 through 25, I'm actually going to pick up from this verse 23. He was talking about uh, this, this fighting situation, and he started laying out a more broad principle, and we're going to read the whole thing. He says, if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, verse 24, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. It's important to pause and look at that because this, you might say, is the heart of the law, the principle of the law. This is what is called legally the lex talionis, which is Latin for the law of the talon or law of the tooth. This is repeated three times in the Torah, eye for an eye. The point, of course, is to establish fairness and justice as our principle of jurisprudence. For example, you bruise somebody, you can't take away the guy's eye. That's not fair. But burn for burn, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's fair dealing with everybody. And principles like this one were there to guide the judges as they, as they made their decisions. Because you all know, they give examples, but there's a whole range of, of experience that comes within that. And principles like this are meant to guide the judges. We've all seen how public pressure can shape, unfortunately, a judicial situation. To push a judge to exceed or reduce a sentence. Or how money can enable a wealthy man to escape what he deserves. But none of that is justice in God's eyes. Where this runs into trouble, and what Jesus had to say, is when you feel the need to exact vengeance in your own life. Matthew 5, 38 and 39, Jesus said, You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. That's probably the first commandment of Jesus you remember hearing. And it's still the hardest one to, to do, isn't it? To turn the other cheek. And we're always looking for loopholes on that one, aren't we? Well, what if, what if, what if, what if? Okay, there's, there's what ifs. 
But let's learn the lesson first. It's okay to let yourself be hurt in order to show mercy and kindness to somebody else. But the law said eye for an eye. And Jesus goes, yeah, but I don't want my people walking around obsessed with getting what they deserve. I want my people to be obsessed with love and kindness and grace. So in days like this where everybody has a grievance about something and everybody accuses everybody else of being whiny about it, where's this guy? The turn the other cheek guy. He ought to be in God's church. So as concerns the law, yeah, we insist upon justice. No more, no less. But you and I, as concerns our own lives, are able to defer justice for love. That's what we're to do. God showed you mercy, not justice at the cross. So are you going to live it out in your life? Verse 26 and 27. This is another one of those things you got to remember when we talk about slavery. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Here's an important corollary to the laws we saw earlier. God did not provide for the injury and abuse of slaves. If you permanently injured your slave or your servant, they had legal recourse to be let out of their contract. And yet, you know what? This does not qualify it either. This would have applied to foreign captives or anybody else. Say, no, you don't get to abuse these people. They get laid up, you have to pay for it. But you know what else? They can go to court and ask to be let go. I don't care how much money you paid them in year one. If it's year four and you knocked out their tooth, they get to leave. Can you see that God is shaping the law to encourage kindness and to punish abusers? Slaves in Israel had rights. They were people. They had legal recourse. They were not to be treated like property, even though they had voluntarily deferred some of their rights in order to gain security or for love for somebody that was in the house. Keep these laws in mind. The abuses that you've heard of were not biblical. We're going to go a little faster here now. I'm going to read down to verse 32, and then I'm actually going to jump down to verse 35, because this all kind of goes together. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Jump into verse 35. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. So here's a collection of laws about animals. This was, of course, an agrarian society. An ox was a big deal at this time. And it, of course, could apply more broadly to our situations. So if an ox which, or a bull killed somebody, then the ox was to be ceremonially killed, stoned, not butchered, and not eaten. Right? It killed somebody, so we're going to kill it by stoning it in such a way that the blood would not be drained and it would be unclean and you couldn't eat it. But there would be no liability. If your ox went nuts and killed somebody, it's a tragedy, but it's not your fault. But if you knew that the animal was wild and you didn't pen it up, you didn't cut off its horns as was done, and it got out and it killed somebody, then that owner would also be killed. 
or I should say could also be killed. And here we get a look at that judicial process, because you see in verse 30, he says he shall be put to death, and then if a ransom is imposed on him. What, a dead guy's got a ransom? This is the idea that if the judge determines, okay, I'm not going to execute you, but you certainly have to pay a fine to this person's family. So the judge could punish somebody up to death, but did not have to. You see, their children were not exempt from this law. Ah, it's just a kid. Now, we kind of really value kids in our society, but some of the places we've done missions trips, over in Nepal, for example, uh, I think it was my father was telling this village, listen, if you and your animals go to the bathroom downstream from the village, the water won't get filthy, and your children won't get sick, and your children won't die. And the man told him, well, we can always have more children. Yeah, every mother in this room has went, oh, <laughs> yeah. But it's important to know that not everywhere are children valued like they are here. So the law makes very special provision to say, you don't get to say, ah, it's just a kid, it doesn't matter. That life is worth just as much, as you all know very well. Nor were slaves. And it's important to know, by saying, oh, so the guy's not going to die if he, if he kills somebody's slaves? No, this is in addition to what we already read. So if, the, if somebody's slave was gored by an ox and dies and this ox had been turned loose, for example, then this person, the owner of the ox, would die, and the owner of the slave would gain 30 shekels, because he just lost out on this investment, which was something he had paid for a six years of service. And when the animal died, you know, if your animal just died, like if they were fighting with each other, tough luck. You split the money, you split the meat, unless it was negligence. Here's a good way to apply this passage. Dogs that bite your dog bites somebody and mauls somebody, all right, that's one thing. But if you know you've got a crazy dog and you don't tie it up, and it seems that most people with crazy dogs don't tie them up, says then you are liable for that. You can apply this to a car you don't take care of. Now, something, if your brakes snap while you're going down the road and you had no idea, that's one thing. But if you knew your brakes were bad and you didn't get them fixed, well, that's on you. You also can see here God makes a distinction between people and animals between situations that are different from one another. And I think we can learn from this. We should be more patient with each other concerning tragedies because sometimes bad things just happen and it's nobody's fault. And that's hard. And that's not very political. That's just the way it goes. Verse 33 and 34. Let's get what was in the middle here because it is kind of a different point. When a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. Closely related, but this is much more related to negligence. You're digging a well. You're digging a trap to catch a lion that's been prowling around on your property. I don't know. Somebody's beast of burden falls into it and is dead. Well, you've got to pay the owner. You can keep the meat, but you've got to pay the owner. Great, now i got a dead donkey, and I lost out on some money. <laughs> This is good. This is negligence without appropriate precautions. We have laws concerning seatbelts. We have building codes and things like that. Well, here's your biblical justification for it. If you have people in your house or your business, if you're sharing a road with somebody or whatever else, you have a responsibility to do whatever you can to protect their lives and their property. How about trimming that tree that's been hanging over your neighbor's house and you know you've got to take it down because if it falls, it's going to smash their windows in. What about making sure you're not messing up the power lines when you're doing yard work or putting a fence around your pool. And we're going to pick up this idea up later, but it's important to know that God requires you to take preventative maintenance care of your neighbor. And some of us, <laughs> we're much more libertarian. We, we need laws like this for anyway. 
Well, even if you got rid of the law, as far as God's concerned, you still have moral culpability. So be careful. Let's see how far we can get. Verses 1 through 4. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for one ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So there's an example of uh, slavery as a punishment for a crime. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So these, is, these laws are about theft, expanding on the eighth commandment. God respects property, and we should be generous with our own property, but that does not give you a right to somebody else's. So if you stole something valuable, like an ox, and you killed it, right? you, you couldn't give it back, you had to pay five times more. Something less valuable, like a sheep, four times more. This is why in 2 Samuel 12, when David hears about the rich man that stole the man's lamb and says he shall repay fourfold, he's calling back to this law right here. This is also why Zacchaeus in Luke 19, he said, I'm giving half my goods to the poor and I'm going to repay everybody else back fourfold. It's coming back to this law right here. But if the thief is caught with the thing in his possession, he only had to pay double because the guy did get it back but he did have to pay a fine. And if you couldn't pay the fine, then you would be sold. So here's a classic example of how this would work. So I don't have that kind of money. Okay, well, then you're going to be sold into this man's service until you've paid off that debt. The lesson there is that poverty is no excuse for theft and that restitution ought always to be made. I, I, I'm not going to talk about this because I just don't have time. But it is interesting for us to note, Israel did not have any prisons or systems of incarceration. I don't know if that's a better system or not. You can think about it. They executed more people, but they also kept more people out in society. They also had an indentured servitude system, which we don't have. And whether that's better or worse than long-term incarceration is up for you to talk about around the dinner table. But he does say in verse 2 that if the thief is caught breaking in in the night, the literal word there is digging in, as in he's digging into the house and they catch him, and he's killed in the struggle, there was no penalty for it. During the daytime, though, if you see somebody broken into your house, control yourself because life is precious. You don't get just to off the guy because he's in your house. It's one thing if it's dark and you don't know what's going on. It's another thing if it's daytime and you can see. We have similar laws in our country, and I think that it's appropriate because you look at it right there in Scripture. If somebody's in your house, you have a right to defend what is yours. But the Lord also tells us, but you ought to control yourself. Don't get trigger happy just because somebody's in your house. And I'll just throw this in there because I think most of us in this room are reasonably pro-gun when it comes to our politics. There's one thing to say, I believe somebody has the right to defend themselves. It's another thing to have this weird kind of celebration we get when somebody gets the chance to shoot somebody with their, with their gun. That's not cool. It's one thing to defend yourself and have the right to defend yourself. It's another thing to get all excited about it. Like, oh, some people I just know, they, they, they hope somebody tries something. So I get the chance to use that ammo I bought. It's okay to be pro-Second Amendment and yet also value life and be restrained in your attitude. So don't steal anything. That's the lesson of that passage right there. If you're doing it, stop. Verse 5 and 6. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. So just very quickly... The way they would prepare their fields for planting and harvesting, you would either 
burn it, or you would send out some animal to eat it all up. And if they got into somebody else's field, you had to pay them back. And notice he says, from the best of your field. You don't get just to say, okay, here's the, the worst apples of my orchard. You can have these. No, it has to come from the best. And it looks like we'll have time to finish. Verse 7 is a longer section to, the, to verse 15. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. So there's a trial there. For every breach of trust, whether it's for an ox or a donkey or a sheep or a cloak or any kind of lost thing, of which one says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. And the one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. It kind of seems to be the standard fine for theft was to pay double. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured and is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So these are laws concerning borrowed animals, borrowed tools, things like that. Very simply, if something's stolen, if you steal something, you pay double. And all of this passage is about determining who was at fault when something was lost. So if there was theft or an accident of some kind, it would be investigated. And it seems in certain cases of robbery or wild beasts tearing up the sheep, for example, he would not be liable. In other cases, and I'm sure this would have been determined by the judges when they came before the Lord, then they would have to pay. Verse 15 tells us that if a man paid a fee to hire that animal and the animal gets stolen, then the loss was covered by the hiring fee. So he's not losing out on money and then having to pay more money. But if it was just borrowed, then you would have to pay something. So there's a difference there between something being lent and something being rented, for example. A complicated little section there. I think it's to accommodate a number of different scenarios is why it goes on like that. We'll, we'll pause it right there. Uh, and we'll, we'll start to wrap it up. What do we learn from the end of this section? What's something to take away? Well, I hope you got a lot of interesting things to take away and ponder. I think, for me, God cares about fairness. God cares about taking the time to sort out the truth and not acting rashly and quickly. And that God insists on responsibility from all parties involved. If we are going to live together as a community then we have to treat each other with love and with respect. And I think you can see that our individual laws may be different, but the heart of the Lord and the principles remain the same.